0: Welcome to the ABCs of Murder podcast. I'm Emma, and we're here today for the first real episode. Very excited. So we are going to be covering five topics today. Autopsies, assaults, attempted murder, alibi, and angels of death. So I say we get right into it. And I'm here to learn, and I'm also here to teach. So let's go. So autopsies. Merriam-Webster defines autopsy as an examination of a body after death to determine the cause of death or the character and extent of changes produced by a disease. So how it works. First the body has to be found and declared dead. Duh. Then the on-scene medical examiner will estimate the time of death using rigor mortis or, more accurately, a reading of the body's internal temperature. If you think about how when you're alive, so you have heat because heat is energy. And so when you die, slowly your heat will exit your body into the atmosphere and the ground around you. So we can tell how long it's been depending on how close your body's temperature is to the air temperature. Okay, so a body is then. The body is then identified and sent to the morgue. Sometimes the, they ask the family or friends to identify, or sometimes they'll just have an ID or something like that on the person, so no one needs to identify the body. Now it splits, because some situation, most situations that I'm going to talk about and that is related to true crime do involve an autopsy, but some do not. So I have a list here, and it is taken from the book How Done It, which I very much recommend because it's informative and interesting, and so it's really great. Okay, so things that do require an autopsy. Murder, suicide, an accident. So these are the list of accidents that require an autopsy. Medical procedures, blows to the head, burns and scalds, crushed under a falling object, drowning, explosion, exposure, fractures, falls, firearms, that's the accidental kind of firearms, carbon monoxide, hanging, sunstroke, poisoning that's food or occupational, like in in the air where you work or whatever, suffocation, vehicular accidents, animals or insect bites, therapeutic accidents, Plane crashes and as well as sudden death for a seemingly health, healthy person, including infants, suspicious deaths under suspicious circumstances, death of an inmate, abortion legal and illegal, deaths that are not attending attended by a physician, poisoning, death during and following medical procedures before a body also before a body can be cremated at sea, a discovered body death where abuse of the elderly is suspected which i think what they're referring to here is cases where you have a suspected angel of death which we'll talk about later but that is the way that they end up catching the angels because when you take the toxicology report like oh there's some poison in here or something you know Okay, a death where no one is around, and the circumstances are unknown, and all deaths within 24 hours of admission to the hospital. So deaths that occur from natural causes, causes, or when it is clear what the cause of death is, do not require an autopsy. So the coroner may do a complete autopsy, a partial autopsy, or may rule the cause of death without an autopsy. So most of the things I listed above require a full autopsy, but some require a par- partial autopsy, which are accidents where you could either just need to check for toxins in the blood, that's drugs and alcohol, or poison, or when you uh or only check the innards and part of a body because you can tell like what the likely cause of death is. So when you don't need an autopsy is when it's clear what the cause of death is or when the death is natural death. So a process of an autopsy includes the identification of a body and putting on a toe tag which says the case number, the person's name, the date and the initials I believe the initials of the coroner. They also the next step is to photograph the body They also need to measure, weigh, and x-ray the body. X-rays can show you the dental records, which are sometimes needed in identifying the body, and can also show you stray bullets that are still inside the body, things like that. Then an external examination is performed, including meticulous notes of all wounds. After that, a dissection of the body with an internal examination is performed using a Y incision, which is an incision that goes from both sides of the chest all the way down to the pelvis, looks like the letter Y. Then uh, the toxicology report is performed to find drugs, alcohol, poisons, and carbon monoxide in the system. Lastly is a dissection of the brain. And then the coroner can estimate a cause of death. So what an autopsy shows is the cause of death, the mechanism of death, which is a pathological condition within the body that caused the death. So I believe that that means, like, a disease, things like that. Uh, Manner of death, be it natural, accident, suicide, or homicide. Time of death, how long the victim lived after the assault. Weapon of death, if any. Which was the fatal wound? Was the body dragged or dumped? What direction did the injury come from, Was what was the position of the deceased, and is there any evidence of rape? So, a place in the legal court. The autopsy report will be shown if there's a court case, and the medical examiner may need to testify as an expert witness if they need to reveal their findings. The autopsy isn't always shown, it's just if it can be used in either the state or the defendant's case. The next topic is assault. So the definition of assault that I gave was a violent, physical, or verbal attack. So how it works, there's a few different types of assault. Common assault is any willful attempt or threat to cause harm to another person. Verbal assault is saying threats and or hate speech to another person. Aggravated assault is attempting or succeeding to cause serious harm to another person which with extreme indifference to human life. And assault with a deadly weapon is an attempt to do serious bodily harm without any justifiable excuse using an instrument that causes harm or death. The last type is sexual assault, which we will discuss when we get to R for rape. So, when when investigating assault, first, the investigator must verify that an assault really took place, which makes sense. This is done by questioning the victim and any witnesses that may have seen the assault happen. You can also check for any wounds or uh, bruises and things on the person. So then they must question the victim and the witnesses. The first question is short unless the a victim is on their deathbed. You'd also want to photograph the injuries over a period of time to see how they develop. The investigators will try and establish motive and then will search the crime scene for any physical evidence like footprints, fingerprints, scuff marks, fibers, buttons, etc. Then the witnesses are questioned. Witnesses are not told their Miranda rights unless they are considered a suspect. So Miranda rights just to remind you are the rights that you are read When you are a suspect, kind of redundant, I know I just said that, but they tell you anything that you say can and will be used against you in court. So next, if and when the police come up with a list of suspects and they are questioning them, they must keep in mind a certain amount of questions, which include, were they near the scene at the time that the assault was taking place? Do they have motive? Do they own the suspected weapon, if any? Can physical evidence be connected to them, and does the suspect have an alibi? We're going to talk about alibis in a few minutes, but you've got to make sure that any kind of suspect for any crime has a good alibi if they say that they did not commit the crime. So I, when I was reading about assault, I was wondering when does it differ to attempted murder? because it seems like for assault with a deadly weapon and even aggravated assault, sometimes the person is, it's very clear that they are trying to hurt the person, the victim. It's an intended thing. It's not like they accidentally spur the moment. I mean, I don't know where I want to know what's the difference. If, Maybe, I think, attempted murder, the only thing that sets it apart is the intent, the premeditation and the intent, like, I'm going to kill this person, but I don't know if I feel like there's not so much, uh, that differs between the two, so intent- attempted murder is an intended premeditated murder that the victim lived through, so- Any kind of case on I survived or things like that where it was a violent circumstance would probably fall under attempted murder. It could be assault with a deadly weapon or things like that. I believe assault with a deadly weapon also includes, like, threats. So it said in How Done It that an example was pointing a gun at someone saying, you know, oh, I'll shoot, but not actually shooting, would be assault with a deadly weapon. So how attempted murder works, it is different than assault because, I believe, because it's about attending and premeditating to kill them rather than just to fight them. This may be wrong, and I apologize. So it also, it placed in the legal court Attempted murders are not uh, prosecuted as murders are. They often get under 20 years, which I think is a little bit ridiculous because the goal is murder, and they just were bad at it. They just failed. So I don't understand how attempted murder and murder are treated so differently. I know that the person, the victim, didn't die, but that's just my opinion. Okay. Okay. Next topic is alibi. So the idea of an alibi is the plea of having been at the time of commission of an act elsewhere than the place of commission. That definition is from Merriam-Webster. When a suspect is brought in for questioning, they will be asked to provide an alibi to show that they were not at the scene of a crime because they were elsewhere. So if someone robs the bank, I could say that I was podcasting Well, the bank was being robbed if I was a suspect, because right now I'm podcasting, so how could I be robbing a bank? So the best alibis are documented with video or photo proof, like security footage, or if you were on an airplane, you'd have a ticket, so you could say, you know, I was suspended in midair, so I could not have robbed that bank. After that, alibis that many people can vouch for you are good, but since friendship and loyalty may get in the way of being truthful, they're not as good, especially when there's just one other person. Yeah, you can ask them, but they're more likely to cover for you. So there's no verifiable alibi. It doesn't mean that a person is guilty, but it does it doesn't mean to rule them out. Especially if the crime was at night. The person very well might have been sleeping, but you cannot verify it. Unless you have some sort of apartment building video footage, then you can tell like, oh, they went in at 5 and didn't come back out until 7.30 in the morning to go for work the next day. The last topic is angels of death. So these are medical killers who kill their patients. Uh, an angel of death is a killer, only a serial killer, like any serial killer, if there are three or more victims, but it is really hard to catch angels of death often, because people die in hospitals, people die in nursing homes, so it's hard to tell when it's just just death because of an illness or old age, and when it's death because of an angel of death, so some people some angels might say that they feel like they're getting r- helping rid the pain of people but many are just murderers and serial murderers who enjoy what they're doing and find a good way to get away with it so you know if they weren't an angel of death they'd probably be have another motive and another MO which is modus operandi which we'll talk about when we get to the letter m so angels like I said, are harder to catch, especially if they move around from job to job. So they're one of the hardest, they're hardest to catch when they're in a nursing home because you don't expect to be moving out of a nursing home. So it's hard to prosecute them, but once you can, you probably have lots of victims, lots of things like that. Which brings me to the case for this week is an angel of death named Dr. Harold Shipman. He is probably well known because you'll see when I get to the victim count why he he would be very well known but I chose this because I think it's fascinating so Harold Shipman was born on January 14th 1946 in Nottingham, England he was very close to his mom who had terminal lung cancer and the home doctor would give her doses of morphine the morphine caused her pain to subside until it wore off a young Harold witnessed this, easing her to die on June 21st, 1963. And it was very hard on him because he was very close to his mom, which is not surprising because, you know, you're a kid and you only have one mom, right? It's not surprising, either, that the morphine would become his weapon of choice when he was a killer. He married Primrose May Oxaby on... November 5, 1966, and they had four children together. Harold studied at Leeds School of Medicine and became a doctor. Other than one time in 1975, where he was caught forging Demerol prescriptions for him to use personally and charged 600 pounds, he was a very good doctor, supposedly, and the whole medical community thought very highly of him. All the while, he was killing a lot of patients mostly elderly women, and a lot of them got cremated after they died, which made it a lot harder to prove that he did anything wrong. So, over 250 victims later, Linda Reynolds was concerned about the large number of deaths in Shipman's hands proportionate to others. Now, if you think about 250, that's the size of a grade in high school or a small company, like, or a medium-sized company even. I don't know, but that's a lot, a lot of people. And not all of them were elderly women. The youngest was four, four years old. And it just ranged in between there, but they, the most were elderly women or elderly people because they're easy to get away with because what do you expect an elderly woman or elderly people to do? Eventually, they're going to die. So, I don't know. I think it's crazy. So, when Linda Reynolds brought it up, they looked into it and found that the vast majority of people that he had signed the death certificates for were murdered with an overdose of morphine. That's the morphine thing tying back to his childhood. So, I think at this point, you can... I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but I think that you you could tie the morphine back to when his mom was on cancer but please correct me if i'm wrong i'm i'm not a, a doctor so or anything so but uh eventually he was finally arrested September 7th 1998 and committed suicide in his cell January 13th 2004 so i think that this case is just crazy and a very good example of an angel of death because 250 victims. What? <laughs> That's insane. Uh, thanks so much for listening and for learning with me. And I hope to see you back for B next week. Uh, see you next time on the ABCs of Murder podcast. Bye. Wait, before you go. I just want to say that I've made an Instagram, so you can go follow over at ABCs of Murder Pod. Thanks and bye!